0: Hello and you're very welcome to the week that really was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. There's a difference this week though folks, Sarah is not here, she is on her holidays, she is off somewhere very sunny drinking little drinks with umbrellas in them. So I am joined instead by somebody who we've never had on this show and really should have had on this show at some stage and that is my friend and colleague and Grips.ie's most intrepid parliamentary reporter, Mr. Ben Scallon. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much John, great to be here.
0: Uh, are you going anywhere this year to drink little drinks with umbrellas in them?
1: No, uh, the the plan is since my wife and I were were expecting at the minute, uh, so that's that's a fun kind of adventure in and of itself. So we we weren't planning on uh, uh, going anywhere too crazy. Oh, we're, that's we're right. Keeping it uh, keeping it domestic uh, for the time being. I, I think there's actually I don't know if it's a rule, but it's kind of frowned upon to fly when you're at a certain uh gestational period I think is uh, very silly the,
0: the... You're, you're entirely correct I completely forgot about that not that you were expecting but I forgot about the rule about flying so uh, what's it like um before we get into like discussing work stuff and all that what's it like um preparing to become a dad for the first time like you're you're still and I hope you know what about me saying you're still like a relatively young guy you're below the normal age these days which people become fathers are you are you nervous about it are you like how are you feeling? If that's not too personal question, yeah,
1: to I'm I'm I mean we're very very excited about it. I'm I'm elated. Um, you, you know it's it's uh it, it's one of those things that we I mean we planned it first of all. Uh, we we got married and then we decided after a certain amount of months we were like let's let's have a baby. So there was nothing kind of shocking or unexpected. But, um, I think that it, it changes instantly as a young man. Your whole perception of your life, because uh, in some ways, it, it I found it's made me a lot more um, brave. In in that I can imagine, you know, you know, as a man, you have these thoughts going through your head, like what if there was a break in in the house, or what if we were walking down the street and somebody tried to mug us or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, I can tell, I I, I feel like I'd be a lot more uh, uh, courageous than I would have been. Uh, to protect you know my this this new family that i've created but then on another level i feel more risk averse because i just feel like there's so much more to lose you know what i mean that mm-hmm. instantly i felt the weight of it as soon as we'd kind of processed the fact that we've we, you know we're expecting and i was like wow there's actually a human being in the world who is fully dependent on me and if anything were to happen to me it would be an irreversible disaster in this person's yeah. life, you know?
0: I remember asking another friend of mine a very uh, the, the same question. Um, and he said, I, I said, what's the biggest thing that's changed in your life now that you're going to have a baby? And he said to me, well, the most immediate thing that's changed is that I've noticed that I drive about 10 miles an hour slower around every corner. Mm. Um, because he, he just said, you know, you're suddenly conscious that there's a whole little defenseless human being, that is enti- not entirely dependent, but who's who who really needs you to stay alive? Um, and I, I think that was a, a great way of summing it up. And you're kind of echoing that and what you're saying. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I think I mean, like uh, we we had a shoot, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago that Gary was suggesting I go down and record this area where there was a bit of uh, rumors of drama and supposedly there were some scuffles and things like that. And I know there was a time uh, where like maybe even as recently as a few months ago, where I would have jumped at that, (laughs) excuse me, where I would have jumped at that and thought, Oh yeah, this would be great content. But the first thought that went through my mind was, I don't know, that's a bit dangerous, which I never really felt that way before. You know, I think um, uh, when you're in your, your early twenties, you're, you're much more ambitious as a man, and you want to get out there, and you're willing to do kind of um, crazy, evil, can evil stunts, and r- r- you know you want to walk yeah. into like the middle of a a far left protest and start waving a mic yeah, in people's look. faces, and if they punch you, you think, "Oh, cool, this will make for uh, <laughs> for great uh, content." Look, I, I yeah. can t-
0: I can tell you that when I was in my early twenties, I was an idiot, particularly behind the wheel. I was an idiot. Um, I never killed anyone or got killed, but I drove. You know, I I. I I don't wanna make it sound to the listeners like I was, you know, driving on the wrong side of the road, but I was just generally like a lot of young lads, I was driving too quickly. And generally you don't realize um how quickly you can be killed, how instantaneously it can all be over. Um and that's and that's something that I think you you naturally get as you, you grow a little bit older, you become more aware of your, your own mortality. But talk to me, Ben, about you mentioned the, the protest you didn't want to go to. Um, I'm going to ask you in a little while about sort of interviewing government ministers and all the stuff you've been doing recently. But you actually have an insight that I don't have into sort of the immigration protests that have been going on over the last couple of, so I suppose you might say six, nine months in Ireland, because you've been to them. You've been there. I've sent you to go and cover them and do videos and come back. I, I don't go myself because I don't live in Dublin, number one. And uh, I just don't have the opportunity to go. And I think it would be inappropriate for me to go as well, is the other point. But you're there, you're covering them as a journalist. Um, what's your sense of, first of all, sort of media assertion that there's the, these are just far right infiltrators coming every week to these events and it's not really local people. What's your sense of that? Is there any truth to that? Is there a partial truth to it? What's the story?
1: I mean, I would say that literally any political movement in the history of the world is going to have a a small section uh, of of fringe people who are attached to it. Uh, I'm sure there's people who come in uh, who are not locals who have their own agendas or whatever that's the that's also true of left-wing protests. that's true of um you know all, all kinds of issues. So I think the issue is not really, do those people exist are there fringe elements i think the real issue is uh, is it by and large a, a valid point being made by the protests and are there a whole load of people behind those fringe individuals who are genuinely regular uh you know mostly apolitical people who have a genuine concern genuine concern about an issue and I think it's certainly uh, the latter when you actually go and talk to these people I mean uh, there there was one woman who stands out to me uh, who I was interviewing um, you know many months ago at the East Wall thing and she was saying uh, she didn't even really know what she identified as be it left wing or right wing like she she didn't even understand really the political vocabulary uh, to know what a far right person is or a far left person is that's how not into politics she was really yet. She found herself at this protest because of um, some concerns she had, you know? So I think there's a lot of people like that who wouldn't even really describe themselves as ideological, but just purely on a practical level, they see what's happening to their community and they object to it on that basis. So, yeah, I mm-hmm. think uh, it's, it's kind of a, a a manipulative framing of the issue when they zero in on a couple of people with some kind of kooky ideas who are you know most people in the audience or in this crowd that we're looking at probably wouldn't even know half of what that person is saying or understand it if they were to explain mm-hmm. it to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that 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 is my sense looking from afar as well. And I know obviously you and I have had conversations about this off the air. We talk every day, um, but that 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 is is my sense as well there is, of course, naturally, there are people who have made this. Immigration issue, their their life's mission, and um, they feel very passionate about it. They're travelling around the country to, as they see it, offer support local communities. But they're not. The local communities are real, and their concerns are real. And the the one of the things that that really frustrates me as somebody who's in the media is the is the way in which so many journalists seem eager to find any reason they can to discredit local protests. They they they're looking around and they're they're looking for a particular individual with a video camera and say, oh, I saw him in Dublin. He's here now. Clearly, this is just the far right traveling around the country. And they're looking to latch on to something so they can say to the public, this is, uh, you know, you shouldn't go to these. It's it's extremists. It's whatever. Um, that's that's my sense of it as well.
1: You, you you want to know how non-ideological most Irish people are. I'll never forget this. This is like a really funny uh, anecdote that I always tell people that when I was running for the general election a few years ago... I was going door to door and I was giving people a pitch and I would consider myself a conservative person. I'm not afraid of that word. You know, I wouldn't consider myself left-wing by any means. But I I gave this guy my pitch and I said, this is what I plan to do and these are my policies. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. That's unreal, man. I'll be voting for you and every other left-wing candidate that comes through here. <laughs> and I, I obviously, you'll take a win where you can get it. I just said cheers and moved on. But I thought that's so funny that Obviously, this is a person who is not particularly familiar with what the sides of the political spectrum mean and why should he be, you know, in a sense. I think that if a politician is delivering results for you in your area and they're doing the things that you want them to do, what label they want to put on themselves or what they call themselves. I, I don't think most people have time to to get a degree in political philosophy and to understand these kind of vague, nebulous, airy-fairy concepts. Uh, I think that it'd be a lot better if we got down to the practicalities of how are these things going to work out for me practically in my life on a day-to-day basis. It's way too much uh, ideas on both the left and the right, I would say. Uh, People aren't really as committed to concepts as they are to their bills and crime and things that they're actually going to run into when they walk outside their house.
0: Talk to me a little bit about running for election, because um, it's something you and I have in common. We are both election losers, but we are both people who run for election. Um, And there's no shame in being an election loser, which, of course, is something that only election losers would ever say. But there isn't. Um, You know, I I remember um, I ran in 2011. Uh, It was just after the crash. Um, i it was honestly, I was at a bit of a loose end, and I thought, you know, I do have things I think are, are worth saying. Um, and I think it's worth challenging the way the country is being run. I remember Pina Fáil were clearly going to lose the election, Fine Gael were clearly going to win it. And I thought, you know, there's there, I don't have confidence in Fine plan for the country, but some if you don't say it and stand, stand yourself, no one else is going to say it. That was that was my view. So I, I, I ran a campaign, I got percent in the vote or whatever it was but it put me off running for election forever um did, did your experience put you off running for election forever or or how did you how did you come to do it and what lessons did you take away from it
1: i, th- I think if if i was going to do it again which i'm not saying i would but hypothetically if i was going to do it again um i would definitely not have picked the constituency that i did because uh, i ran in dublin bay south which I mean, I think I was literally about 21 or 22 years old at the time. And so I really didn't have any political experience or knowledge of what I was doing. It was really, uh, um, you know, last minute, cobbled together campaign. And uh, I've since kind of come to realize that I'm pretty sure that's the most liberal constituency in the entire country. I think it's even more liberal than uh, Dun Laoghaire and so on. So the kinds of... Uh, the kinds of ideas I would have been coming with probably would not have been uh, too well suited to to the place that uh, I attempted to to get them off of the line. So yeah, uh, and
0: it's it, it's so difficult as well. I mean, I think a lot. What a lot of people don't realize about Irish politics is, you know, I remember I stood in Cabin Monahan, which is a much more conservative and inverted commas constituency than Dublin Bay South as it now is. But the sheer scale of it is is something. It's 100 kilometres from one end to the other. And Irish people expect if they're going to vote for somebody. They don't expect to meet every candidate, but they have a much higher chance of voting for somebody if they've actually met them. And that constituency you ran in, I, I remember um, long before I ever was involved in grip. I remember knocking on doors for, in it for Lucinda Creighton. Uh, it, it would take you like a year to knock on even 60% of the doors. So it's mm. so huge. It's such a huge people, I think, don't realize what a huge undertaking it is, which is why I tend to have a slight soft spot for our elected politicians, because they they, they they have to put in so much work just to get elected. And I'm guessing you had a fairly small team like I did. Oh,
1: yeah, it was it was literally uh, like on a good day, it would maybe be like eight or nine volunteers and people who just, you know, very generously offered to give their time because they believed in the ideas that, you know, we were talking about at the time. Um, but yeah, no, it was nothing. And, you know, actually on on this subject, I do feel like there... I don't think we've even ever talked about it on Gripped before, but the fact that political parties get funding uh, once they get over a certain threshold of, uh, of the vote, I feel like there's something that should be looked at there in terms of fairness, because it seems like the system the political system almost has like an inbuilt bias in favor of incumbents where Mm. if you're already there, you've, you, you're guaranteed to have millions of euros worth of funding for posters and, you know, campaigners and ads and whatever else you want. Whereas if you're an outsider, who's trying to get off the ground, unless you're independently minted, uh, you know, you're probably going to run into extremely stiff competition with, uh, parties that have just vastly more resources like you. I'm not sure how well, more resources than you. I'm not sure how fair that is.
0: Well, technically, of course, they're not allowed to spend that money on, on posters and advertising. They're not technically, if you get money from the state and your political party, you're not te- And please listen to the word technically, not technically allowed to spend it on sort of posters and billboards and leaflets. But, of course, what you can spend it on is it's non-electioneering material. So you can send everyone in the constituency a calendar with your face on it, and uh, you can send them out information about what's in the budget and how it affects them, and all sorts of leaflets you can send. So there is definitely an advantage there. And, of course, you can pay for secretaries to answer all your constituent queries and all of that sort of stuff. So there is a huge inbuilt incumbency bias um, there and it is it, it's incredibly difficult in Ireland Sarah and I have talked about this in the past to get uh, a new political party off the ground. So you, you end up with these established parties and, and you see at the moment, I mean there there are lots of people in Ireland uh, from pat to and into to the social Democrats who have sort of made some go of it. To uh, other organisations on the right who are trying to become political parties, then you've Michael Fitzmaurice trying to set up something with independence. Um, it's very very difficult. It's very difficult for a whole host of reasons, but funding is a is a major, uh, reason for it, and it'll become more difficult now as well because the government might be able to label any opponent, any opposing or new party that rises up as potential purveyors of hate speech, which brings me to your encounter with Helen McIntyre this week, um. Talk to me before we get into that, about what it's like in general uh, interviewing ministers. Because I, I remember, I, I I, not telling any secrets here. I mean, I'm the editor. I, I I, sent you initially six, eight, ten months ago to go and go to some government press conference once became members of the press council. And, you know, I, I hope you don't mind me saying you were you were nervous about doing it initially. Um, Why did you feel nervous initially? And do you still feel any nerves when you go?
1: Well, I'll will start off by first of all saying I I don't think you get enough credit for the success of the press events that we've done so far because <laughs> a lot of the time you're the evil genius and the mastermind behind the actual questions and you know or and obviously we collaborate and you know Gary has an input and you know we we work on wording and everything like that but really arguably I'm just the receptacle or the uh the mouthpiece but uh, yeah know, so it's. Certainly a collaborative effort on that front. But I will say, yeah, I wasn't so much nervous about the idea. I loved the idea. The the actual concept was great. But I think there's something very daunting at first. Um, You know, when you think about the fact that in, in the environment you're going into, you know that the overwhelming majority of people in the room, namely all the journalists and the politicians, they all agree with each other. The atmosphere, I've described it in the past as it's almost like a tea party. And then you're coming in as the jerk, who's there to crash the tea party by asking actual hard questions and trying to get down to business. And so it's, it's kind of like a combination of two common fears that people have where on one hand, uh, you know, it's like public speaking because you're standing up in front of the whole room and everybody's eyes are on you. And, you know, it's uh, an intensely hostile crowd. And then there's kind of a a bit of adrenaline because you're about to confront somebody, you know, not in a, uh, uh, you know, you're not being aggressive or anything, but you are kind of putting it to them that, hey, haven't you made a serious policy error here or weren't you wrong about this? And so all of those kind of combine into this cocktail of nerves initially. And it did certainly take a few of them to to find my footing. Um, actually, one one example, speaking of McIntyre, was the fact that last year when we first questioned her about sentencing, uh, that that kind of now infamous picture of her and Pascal Donahue looking at me with uh, uh, great disdain, it appears. Uh, I didn't interrupt her then, even though she was kind of waffling, because I, it was one of the first ones we had done. And I wasn't sure what was allowed. I, I, I hadn't gotten the etiquette yet. And her assistant was gesturing for me basically to like stop talking as I was trying to cut in. And I figured, oh, OK, must be the done thing. I didn't have any frame of reference. So then as I got a bit more experience and I realized what's allowed, and what's not, um, you know, I decided that this time when I questioned her this week, I was going to be a little bit more um, pushy and kind of cut her off if she attempted to evade the question, which she unfortunately kind of did. Um, So, yeah, I think definitely it's a big learning curve. You have to figure out where's the line and how do you, let them answer the question, obviously. I don't want to just be rude and interrupt, yeah. but without letting them just waffle on and get, get letting them away with murder, you know?
0: Yeah, I know I know. Um, I have never been in the position that you're in at these press conferences where I'm asking questions. But over a sort of a storied career and sort of uh, before we did grip of, of referendum campaigns and, and other issues, I've been on the other side of the the microphone at press conferences. I've been standing there in front of the assembled Irish media, the great and the good and the young and the hungry. And um what always strikes me is sort of the, you know, the the ideological conformity that's there and the way the questions are always sort of structured to advance what they want to talk about. Um, you know, you can go to a press conference as as hell in fairness to Helen McEntee, right? She goes to that press conference yesterday and I'm not sure it was about her maternity leave or her leadership ambition. I'm pretty sure she was there to advance a message on a particular topic. Uh, and you asked her a legitimate question about um, about the hate speech bill. But the other journalists, um, almost uniformly, came up with headlines about her experience on maternity leave because that's what was decided at the press conference it was going to be about. And it doesn't really matter what the politician uh, or the person on the other side wants to say. The media kind of acts like this sort of hive mind to decide what the issue of the day is, and it's usually some processy, gossipy story. That That's my experience from having been on the other side of the microphone. But does that tally with your view? I mean, I, I should say, I think we should both say that there are some very fine journalists at these things who can be very helpful and are there just trying to do their jobs like everybody else. But the collective impact is, I think, sometimes a bit of a journalistic high of mine.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, there's some journalists who uh, I'm not even sure if I should name them because maybe me endorsing them would uh, <laughs> cause yeah. more drama than it's worth. But uh, there are a couple of them who I mainstream media journalists who I would consider to be impressive and to be good at their jobs. And um, you know, I yeah have conversations with them naturally at these things, and it's always perfectly amicable. Um, so yeah, overall, I'd say the the industry, the media industry in this country is dropping the ball but there are certainly uh individuals in there who are worth uh worth discussing and you know i'll say this as well when it comes to the uh the politicians leo Veradker you know i've had a few exchanges with him to his credit he's actually answered every single question i asked him if you listen back to them you know whatever you think about the quality of his answers and obviously a lot of people were not satisfied with the quality or what the actual content was of what he said but he didn't evade it and he didn't try and uh, obfuscate or you know answer a different question he did tackle it head-on for better or for worse so i think that is worth um you know giving him some points for uh compared to some others who just totally go off script as soon as uh as soon as you stop talking you know
0: yeah, and I also think it's very important. You, you, you probably gave me too much credit a few minutes ago, but the one thing that I, I, I've always been keen that we accomplish is a news outlet from going to these things, like, our job is not. There are many people out there, and a good few of them are our readers. right? It, the chances are, if you're a gripped reader or a gripped listener, you're listening to this podcast, you probably aren't sympathetic with the views of the government. There's a, there's a reasonable chance, um, or maybe you're a frustrated Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil supporter, I don't know, but you're probably not necessarily happy with how things are going in the country if you're listening to a podcast like this or you're reading a website like Grip. That said, it is not our job ever to make ministers look bad. That's not what we set out to do, and, and, that's, and that's a really important red line. The only job that we have is to put a, a question to them that we think is fair, that we don't think other people are asking, and we think a lot of people are interested in the answer to. Um, And I think that's that's such a really important red line. And I think there was a great example of it with Helen McEntee yesterday, where you just asked her, as it wasn't yesterday, it was it was it was it was Tuesday of this week, I think, um, or Wednesday. Uh, but you you simply asked her to account for a statement she had made in the Shannon, which didn't appear to be backed by evidence. Um, and after that, I think. I'll offer my opinion. I thought she made herself look terrible in her answer, but that's not the objective. That's not what you're there to do. Um, and I think I think that's one of the reasons why um, you've developed this um, cult following among people is because you're one of the few people doing that. You're not there. Everyone knows you have a view of the world. I've got a view of the world. Um, you know, Your colleagues from the rest of the media have a view of the world, which may not be as obvious, but is there. But you're not importing that view of the world into your questions. I think that's so important.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I mean, uh, to just give an example, um, I remember when I had an interview with uh, Darrell O'Brien, the the housing minister, and I was asking him about our Ukraine policy. And while I I didn't agree with almost anything he said, he gave really fair answers, uh, really reasonable answers, even if you disagree with them. He I, I didn't feel like he was trying to evade the points. I didn't feel like he was trying to be sneaky or anything. Um, He just had a different perspective on the issue. And, uh, you know, again, I think if if you ask a question and they give an answer that isn't absurd and it's not a lie and it's not terrible, at a certain point you go, okay, fair enough. I've done my job and you've done your job, you know? And that's, that's kind of the... The give and take of what what a press briefing is supposed to be, um, you know, even when you don't necessarily agree with the politician in question. Uh it's it's only the 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 time to press them, I think, is when they try to evade it. It is when they uh get angry or frustrated that you're asking them about a certain topic. That's when uh there there needs to be a little bit of um you know pugilism verbally uh Mm -hmm. but yeah definitely i think um there's a big difference you know i don't want to i don't want to be i don't know if we want to go there but there are other outlets that the government have said themselves they feel like uh these outlets are only out to get the government and take them down effectively and for that reason they don't really have any uh any credibility hmm. here. Maybe we should cut that out. I don't know if that's... Uh, uh, no, 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 no,
0: no, 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 we, no. We, we'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, because Michal Martin said this, uh, specifically referring to the ditch, um, yeah. where, where Michal Martin said they were out to bring down the government. Now, to be honest, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we have, we're not in the business of taking down, we're in a very different space than the ditch are. I want to give the ditch fair credit where it's due. I mean, they do uh, investigative work they're very good at the investigative work they do. They've uncovered some bona fide scandals and some ministers have resigned as a result. Um, so perhaps we're less of an immediate threat to the government than Michal Martin is. And perhaps if we became a threat, we might get that treatment as well. But that said, um, I do think it's very, very important for for everyone to know that is not our agenda. Like I, I, I As editor of GRIPT, I don't have an agenda to take out the current government. I think... As a matter of, as a, as a person, as a voter, I think it will be better for the country where they're not elected, but that's a decision for voters to make. Our job as a, as a media outlet is to hold them accountable for the promises they made and the decisions that they're making and to ask them to justify those to people who are sceptical of them, which is actually, when you think about it, providing the government with a service uh, and providing the public with a service. That's the job of the media. That's what we do. Um so 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 yeah, I think that, I think it's I think it's 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 really important that you don't go down the road. Not you, but one doesn't go down the road of becoming a sort of screaming partisan uh who's out to damage one set of politicians and elect another. Mainly because life experience will teach everybody there isn't that much difference between one set of politicians and another. Um and I think a lot of Sinn Fein voters might learn that if Sinn Fein happens to win the next election. I
1: I think I think that about um Groups like, for example, People Before Profit, who are just serial, chronic complainers. You know, I I don't think I've ever seen a video of Richard Boyd Barrett where he's not screaming at the top of his lungs. And I think when it comes to uh, uh, an individual like that or a group like that, their their complaint has no weight or 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 substance anymore. You know, when they say, you know, government, you're really messing up. You you made a balls of this policy. This was a disastrous decision. It, it doesn't mean anything because you guys say that every single day about everything. you'd never give the government credit and I'm not saying that government deserve a lot of credit I mean I, I it's it's no secret that I wouldn't be a huge fan of the current government but I'm just saying in general if if you've made it clear that you are um just emphatically opposed to them on a cellular level and nothing they could ever do would uh you know satisfy or placate you in any way then why should they listen to your criticisms? Uh, you know, regardless of how true or untrue they may be, that you can pretty much just be discounted as, "Oh, yeah, those are the lads who were just screaming all the time." N- never mind; it's more of the same.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, no, you're completely right. Anyway, I, I, sorry, that sounded very dismissive when I said, "Oh no, you're completely right." Anyway, no, he is completely right. But we've got limited time, folks, so we're going to move on to talk about something I think listeners are interested in, which is the hate speech bill. Do you know what's interested me about the hate speech? bill then is the international attention that it has received i saw um jordan peterson retweeting you uh or retweeting gripped yesterday uh which i was pleased by i mean doesn't doesn't do much for gripped i don't think i mean the international audience is is great and everything but but in terms of it doesn't do much domestically but there's huge international concern about this bill there genuinely is and it's not just coming from What did Helen McIntyre say? Fringe elements on the American right? That's not true. I saw David Frum um, talking about it yesterday. Now, for those who don't know, David Frum is a writer for The Atlantic, which is by no means a right-wing outlet, former speechwriter for various American presidents, very centrist guy, hates Donald Trump, was talking about the Irish hate speech bill as an example of why the American First Amendment was so good. Because this is, I think, it's internationally recognized, a very extreme piece of legislation. Um, What's your sense been of, is there any degree to which Irish politicians are even remotely cognizant of the fact that around the world they are being used by people as an example of what not to do?
1: Well, I think, I mean, there's a, there's an event happening in London next week, uh, and it's going to be attended. I'll, I'll be going to it, which is how I know about it, that that it's a, it's a ticketed event, and it's uh, uh, being attended by Russell Brand and Michael Schellenberger from the US and uh, Matt Taibbi and a few other people um, who are from, you know, all over the world, but they are concerned about censorship globally, but specifically... I've I've heard some of these individuals talking about how Ireland is kind of in their view the epicenter of you know mad censorship um we we rival even Canada which at one point would have been considered one of if not the worst country in the west for uh censoring its own citizens but yeah no they've certainly other other countries and uh people around the globe have started to take a real um negative interest in ireland in the sense that they're saying what are you guys doing and uh i i think if anything it's weird because the government as you know uh their kryptonite is foreign scrutiny basically everything they do is uh to impress people overseas be it those in strasbourg or brussels or wherever else it might be It, it seems like we there's a kind of an internationalist focus to to most policies that we pursue in this country um so i think that if the rest of the world are the ones who are saying hang on a minute now what are you guys doing that should in theory make them stop at their tracks so it'll be cure i'll be curious to see if that actually hinders them or slows them down at all
0: it's a uh, it's it's interesting you say about the international bent because i i always think going back years ago uh, to having a conversation with somebody in in Europe um, who was talking about the Irish groups that showed up to various meetings. And any time a topic like reproductive rights, in inverted commas, came up, the Irish attendees would always apologize and, and profusely tell other attendees that they were really embarrassed about Irish abortion laws and working to change it you know but uh, not not necessarily on the floor of the meeting but like in conversation they would always be like oh yeah we're we're so terrible we're working to make ireland more liberal and more progressive they were embarrassed internationally by uh, any sense that they were representing a backward country in and, and you know
1: you know it's a great you know it's a great uh, example of that is the fact that one of the most commonly used arguments for any issue in in this country is we're out of line with the european norm or you know this the international best practice we're not living up to this standard that most countries in the oecd or whatever else it is uh pursue and you know in some circumstances that could be meaningful you know depending on the issue but a lot of the time it'll be a, a kind of a subjective moral issue like abortion or you know uh whatever else whatever other kind of issue you want to look at a controversial issue and it's seen as an argument in and of itself the fact that everybody else is doing it we're obviously the idiots because we're not following them and it never occurs to us it's like we don't have the the self confidence as a as a culture and uh, and as a society to say no actually maybe we got it right and you guys are all the idiots you know that that's what a confident uh, nation would do, but that seems to never occur to anybody in power that yeah. we should actually be proud of the fact that we're different and that we don't think the exact same way as people in uh, you know, Germany and, and Italy and everywhere else.
0: What I always find, I think, is a very hard pill to swallow for some people is that most countries don't think of us at all. I mean, no, no one ever is, is concerned about what Ireland are doing because we're not that important. I, I, I just, sorry, complete aside, but there's a story this week about people uh, deflating the tires of SUVs in Dublin to try and get Irish people to stop driving enormous SUVs which are apparently polluting the climate and I, I can only laugh Ben because a couple of years ago I remember driving down I-4 in Florida uh, I-4 is the main highway that goes roughly horizontally across the state of Florida and the you know, anyone who's driven on a major highway in the US will know that Irish SUVs look like toy cars beside the kind of thing that the average American soccer soccer mom drives to drop the kids to school.
1: It's basically a monster truck.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um and there are millions of these things. And we are focused on, you know, a couple of thousand little Range Rovers poodling around Dunleary on low revs. It's um it, it there is a sort of national sense that the world is watching us when it's not. and maybe that's common to every country maybe 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 people in Belgium feel that like Irish people are watching what the Belgians are doing. maybe maybe there are people in Slovakia who are concerned about international attention on their corporate tax policy. I mean, and the truth is if you think about it, uh, if you're if, 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 if any normal Irish person, think about it, when was the last time you ever gave any thought to anything that happened in Slovakia, or Eritrea, or even New Zealand. You don't. I mean, most people in Ireland know the name of the last New Zealand Prime Minister. I dare anyone to name her successor, because because and that's how the rest of the world thinks about us. Um, but Irish politicians, you're right, have this idea that somehow um, they need to be the old cliches, the best boys in the class, um, and that I think is where this hate speech comes. Hate speech law, in part, comes from. I think the other element to it is that. that you know, we often joke about the in inverted commas rise of the far right. but One of the things that's scary is not is not that that's a talking point. It's that I think people in Leinster House genuinely with all their hearts believe it. They really believe that fascism is on the march and must be resisted. Um, and I think there's a degree to which the hate speech bill law, law from my perspective shows the way the Irish government is entirely out of step with what's happening in its own country. They genuinely believe the bull crap about a massive rise in hate crime incidents, even though that is primarily, as you pointed out, uh, about how the Gardaí have changed their reporting um, uh, for hate crime incidents. So yeah, I think it's it's, it's all of those things. But um, I
1: think I think as well, I think as well, uh, you know, they say that um, oh, there's a big rise in far right sentiment, but the the Overton window in this country is so warped. Where there are people who will tell you with, uh, you know, a dead serious expression on their face that Fina Gael and Fina Fall are ro- seriously hardline right wing, if not the out- far right themselves, and that's clearly not true. If whatever whatever you want to say about them, if you look at their actual politics and policies, I'm not saying they're communists. That would obviously be ludicrous. They're not far left, but they're at, at the very the furthest right i'd say you could place them is in the center you know you could argue that they're kind of a centrist party maybe mm-hmm. uh the 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 Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil mono monoparty but uh if if you're coming at it from the perspective of uh finna is the right-wing conservative party of ireland which is not true but if that's your belief then anybody who's you know significantly further to the right of Fine Gael, be it on you know social issues economic issues whatever it might be looks like a fringe neo-nazi lunatic but that's not because they actually are that that's because you have it's it's your perspective that's off on how <laughs> how where these where these groups should fall in a normal society of course there's going to be a section of society that is skeptical of progressive social politics and you know migration and things of that nature every country in the world has that that doesn't mean that those people are extremist head cases
0: Mm. Mm. anyway it extends unfortunately right across society this sort of fear of the march of, of of extremism i think another 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 factor uh as well is the degree to which and you've done some great work on this because I was watching some videos you put together on your entire you, you gave me credit earlier on for press conferences more than I deserved, but but you alone get credit for some videos you've done recently showing the degree to which Irish politicians copy each other in terms of their phrases. So you did one a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago about how they kept saying build back better. Then once you published the video they stopped saying it. And and in this week you published a video talking about how they or not talking about but showing how they keep repeating this phrase, international legal and moral obligation in relation to immigration. Um, and I think it reflects to some extent, I talked about this a little bit with Sarah, I think it was on last week's episode, maybe the week before, about sort of the lack of capacity in the political system. That there are a lot of these people who, with and I say this in the most respectful way that I can, but I'm going to say it, just aren't really what you'd call great thinkers. They're not in politics because they initially decided that they want to change the country. In some cases, they're in politics because their father was in politics. In other cases, because you know they were involved in the local community, got some votes to fix potholes, and then the party nominated them to be a TV. But they end up sort of just latching on to what everyone else is doing. And the other thing is, because we have this PRSTV electoral system, where everyone has to get transfers from everybody else. It really pays to stick close to the herd and not be too different because you, if you're a Fine Gael TV, you want Fianna Fáil voters to give you transfers and Labour voters to give you transfers and so on and so forth. So you have to kind of stick within what the herd is saying. And so the idea that there will be people with views outside of the herd is is sort of instinctively frightening to them because they kind of feel that they represent all of Irish opinion because they're in Leinster House. And the idea that they don't is frightening to politicians, and they reject it, and they come up with this explanations like, oh, this must be extremist. I think there's a huge element to that, because sometimes I think you'd find when you talk to these people, when the cameras aren't rolling, they would agree with you about a lot of what people are saying, particularly on an issue like immigration. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that seems to be the... uh the general attitude I was told by a Feale TD senior I, I won't say again obviously I won't say who it is but he he said to me in private that he understands and in many cases agrees with a lot of the concerns that people have not just around immigration but around issues like uh gender you know all of these co- contentious topics and he says he, he was say he was expressing his frustration because he said, you know, he's been in politics for however many years and he feels like he has a mandate and he he's a elected member of parliament and he should be allowed to say what he wants to say. But he was of the opinion that he'd get in serious trouble if he was ever to voice said concerns at a meeting or to say, you know what, actually, I think so-and-so has a good point uh, and maybe we are doing, uh, we're, we're running this immigration thing in the wrong way or whatever it might be. Uh, and so there's even politicians, I think, who are they, they feel kind of beholden to the the, the mob and uh, whether that mob comes from within their own party or outside it and, and people who would surprise you who don't buy into this stuff and who are uh, actually probably more in alignment with our own views than they would be with the current policy. And yet they'll vote for the, the policy anyway out of uh, fear and you know you could call that cowardice you could you could criticize that and you could say that's that's uh, wrong and it probably is but it is interesting that not every single member of the government is like this diehard ideologue who is fanatically obsessed with letting in unlimited refugees and and Mm -hmm. going to the the making Ireland the most climate insane country in the world, there is actually a lot of ideological diversity even within the parties that are pushing this.
0: Hmm. It reminds me of the Ronald Reagan. I think it was Ronald Reagan. Somebody will tell me if I'm giving Reagan a quote that he didn't say, but I think it was him who said in response to somebody who questioned him once about some particular issue and why should you vote for him? He said that, you know, look, if you agree with me 80% of the time you should vote for me. But if you agree with me 100% of the time, you should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm thinking of that because in, in terms of what you're saying in the hate speech debate in the Shannon this week, Fianna Fáil Senator Dennis O'Donovan, um, who I think made the entirely correct decision to oppose this piece of legislation, but something he said really stuck with me because he said, I've been in politics for 30 years and this is the third, only the third time I'm ever voting against my own party. I, I'm sorry, but that's a problem. You know, if, <laughs> if you if you have been in politics 30 years and you've agreed with everything Fianna Fáil has done and, and voted for them every time but three in 30 years and all the votes in the Shad, the Dahl and the Rockers, that's a problem because I guarantee, I mean, Dennis O'Donovan, he, he's not insane. He doesn't need to see a psychiatrist. He's a very capable politician. But the law of averages would suggest that there are dozens, hundreds of occasions over the course of his 30-year career that he has voted for stuff he doesn't agree with. It's just the law of human nature um, and probably felt compelled to swallow a lot of that hole. And I think we see I think the hate speech bill is a really good example of that in practice, because I think both of us have probably been talked to a whole range of politicians in the government parties who are deeply uncomfortable with this legislation, deeply uncomfortable mm-hmm. with it, but kind of feel like there's nothing more. I mean, poor old Joe O'Reilly. God help Joe O'Reilly, a a, a lovely man, a very fine senator, very committed to his community, works really hard, does everything a politician needs to do. But somebody wrote for him a speech this week in which he said that we needed a hate speech bill because jokes could lead to radicalization. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm going to. Joe, you have a right of reply. You can come on this show next week. Um, But I don't believe he believes that. I do not believe he believes that. I believe he's reading out what somebody in the press office wrote for him. Um and I think it's it's just this old pablum of sort of like it's the done thing. I've been you know, the government puts something forward, you vote for it if you're on the government side and you vote against it if you're on the opposition side. I think I think it erodes the intellectual integrity of Irish politics.
1: That's uh, that's one of the big problems, I think. in And I don't know if this is unique to Ireland. It's probably true of most countries. I'd say this is, as you say, just a part of human nature and it's the way people operate. But you do get a lot of people who would vehemently oppose a, a political party, but vote for a candidate in that political party because they like them as an individual. And with few exceptions, you kind of want to look at those people and say, you do realize that they will vote with the government. There's an overwhelming chance that whatever the whatever you hate about, be it Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael or whoever, that they're going to make that happen. Even if, as we were saying here, even if they oppose it on an individual personal level, and he's a really sound lad, uh, that that's not going to make any difference when it comes to the actual vote. I mean, I I, uh, I did an uh, vox pop on the street a couple of months ago, where he's interviewing people about whether or not they would vote for Bertie Hearn for president. I know the presidency is a little bit different to being a TD, but it still kind of conveys the the point that there was one woman who said she'd absolutely vote for Bertie Hearn. She'd be delighted to do so. She thinks it would be fantastic if he ran for president. But then when I asked her, I said, do you think he would benefit Fianna Fáil now that he's returned to the party? She says, oh, well, I hope (laughs) not. I hate Fianna Fáil. And do you think, how but but this is the way a lot of people think that they they're able to successfully compartmentalize and separate the candidate from the larger political vehicle but i don't think that's always a wise thing to do because sometimes the guy who's great at fixing potholes outside your house is also going to obey the whip when uh there there's a risk of it being cracked so i don't know it's uh it's one of those things that I I wish people would think about more when they're giving people out their number one.
0: Well, 10 more years of doing what you're doing if somebody else doesn't snap you off us um and you'll probably be an expert and have, have all the insights and maybe run for election again at some stage. I I have to say um I'm never going to run for election again. Uh it's it's it, it was it was a depressing experience I found not because just because of the way Irish politics work. I mean, I One of the things that you learn very quickly when you're running for election in Ireland is that voters don't really care about policy. And I mean that sincerely, and I don't mean it in an insulting way, and I'm not saying voters are irrational. Voters make rational decisions. They vote for the person who delivers for them. So that's how you have this situation in the country where everyone wants housing, and everyone votes for people or says they'll vote for people who'll solve the housing crisis, but they actually vote for the politicians who'll object to the housing uh, that's proposed in their local estate or everyone says they agree with a uh, policy to centralize the health service and have centers of excellence, but they vote for the person who want to make sure that their local hospital is kept um, and so on. So, so I found it a quite depressing experience because I remember going out as a young, naive person with all these ideas of how to make the country better. And almost every door I'd knock on, you would get a question about some local issue like a playground or a pothole. Um, and... There are some people who are very, very good at that, and they get elected. And they're like, I, I, I saw that Councillor Shane P. O'Reilly, for example, is going to stand apparently for this new party that Michael Fitzmaurice is setting up. He's he's a brilliant politician, absolutely astonishingly talented, brilliant politician who's great at that sort of stuff, and I think has ideas nationally as well. I should say, but I think the political system that we have um, kind of creates this thing where voters prioritize the wrong things from a national perspective that's that's my theory uh, here's, which... here's
1: a question for you John do you think we have too many political parties and I'll, I I do want to hear your thoughts on this and I'm not going to go off on one about it after asking you but I, I will say because I've always wondered you know I think about how simple it is in some other countries where you've got America and it's Republicans and Democrats and so if you want to learn who the bad guys are quote-unquote you just have to look at two parties policies. And you can quickly make up your mind based on your own values. Whereas I think in a country like Ireland, I mean, it's even worse in the Netherlands. But, you know, I I know about Ireland, so I'll refer to ourselves, when you've got 10 or 11 parties, you know, some of them with seats, some of them without seats, it's just so chaotic and messy, that you get people ditching one party for another group that's almost identical, because nobody has time to read 10 or 11 manifestos yeah. And uh, I don't know, do you have any thoughts
0: on that? I, I completely agree with you. So, I mean, in America, the Greens, the Social Democrats, the Labour Party, Sinn Féin, probably Fianna Fáil would all be part of the Democratic Party, right? They, they'd all be in Democrats. Um, and, they're, you know, if we, and the Democrats, by the way, if this was the 51st state, would win 95% of the vote here. The 5% would be like Matty McGraw and the lads, I assume. But leave that aside. Let's assume it's 50-50. The the reason why I think that system is so much better is because you've got permanent coalitions and it disempowers extremism. The thing about a two-party system, one of the reasons, for example, that, you know, we... I know it's anathema in Ireland to say anything positive about Britain, but Britain, almost alone amongst European, uh, older European countries, has never had uh, an extremist government. It's never had a communist government. It's never had a fascist government. It's generally always had sort of moderate, middle-of-the-road governments of the centre-left or centre-right. One of the reasons for that is that it's got two parties. So if you are somebody who's kind of like got hardline right-wing views, you're in the Tory party, but you're in the Tory party along with somebody who's the equivalent of an Irish Finegaler. And if you're in the Labour Party, you're in the Labour Party and you might be an old-style trade unionist, but you're in there with somebody who's the equivalent of an Irish social democrat or an LGBT activist. And that system disempowers the fringes. So you don't have a situation like you have in Ireland where the Green Party have a complete knife to the throat of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on the green stuff. In the US, the Democrats, for example, are much more moderate I'm sorry, this will upset some people than they are given credit for, primarily because they are a coalition, and in the Dem- if the Democrats want to govern, they have to win the vote of somebody like Joe Manchin, the Senator from West Virginia whose main issue is keeping coal mines open. So you have... Uh, Permanent coalitions that have learned to compromise with each other and come up with a platform that's broadly acceptable to the centre-left and to the centre-right. And it leads to, in my view, a more coherent proposition for voters and easier decisions for voters to make. That's my that's my theory. Somebody is going to listen to this and say, yeah, but they got Trump and we never would. Possibly. There's possibly some elements of that. But you know, in Ireland, it's not that hard to imagine a sort of Trump-style figure emerging on the right and suddenly saying to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, well, we'll take the Ministry for Justice and the Ministry for Health and do our thing and you do everything else and, and you get the same kind of policies anyway. So the idea that, that their systems mitigate are better than ours just doesn't stand up for me. That was a very long answer, Ben, but I hope it is an answer.
1: No, it was a very good answer. I appreciated it. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... It's one of those things that I think is a real hindrance to, uh, you know, regardless of your ideology, it is just that much harder. You know, nobody wants to do significant amounts of homework just to find out uh, mm. basic the basic tenets. I I guarantee you, if you walk down the street and this might actually make a fun Vox Pop and asked people to identify a policy by the Social Democrats, they wouldn't be able to do it or Labour for that matter or you know, even even some of the bigger parties. Like I, I, uh, we talked about doing it before, and that we we still might go ahead with it. But I had I had a plan for a video where I had a list of quotes from various party leaders on various topics like immigration and climate change and whatever else, and I was going to ask people to identify which party leader said it. And the the kind of point is you would not be able to tell under any circumstances it like Mm -hmm. you can't even begin to guess because any of them could have said it realistically
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and there's kind of no clues and so it's not even really a gotcha or a trick question it just sort of exposes um the fact that there's there's no way you could possibly know a a you know labor party manifesto from Uh, you know some of the other parties on if they didn't have the logo on it if you just had the raw policies and the information you'd be like this could be almost any party in the state and that's a bit of a disaster
0: Yep, and then they all put stuff in their manifesto that no one voted for because no one reads the manifestos and then then they implement it on the basis that, well, everyone voted for it, it was in our manifesto. So, look, we're not going to solve uh, the Irish political system today under any circumstances, unfortunately, but it's been an interesting and illuminating chat, Ben. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you on the show. We'll have you back again, I'm sure, perhaps in conjunction with Sarah when she's back. But for now, I'm afraid, folks, that is all the time. Well, it's not all the time we have. We could probably talk for another hour, but it's presumably all the time you want to listen to us for, if research tells us anything. Um, So we're going to leave it there. Um, From Ben and from me, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for all your support for GRIPT. But for now, my friends, that was another edition of the week that really was.